Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, September 13, 2020. The share ID numbers for Friday, September 11th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 15,335. That's 15335. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 15,337. 15337. This morning, A Vision for You presents Building a Bridge to God. In step one, we found complete despair, powerlessness. We cannot solve the problem of compulsive overeating by ourselves. We've realized that anything that comes from our own resources, our will, our effort, our self-knowledge, philosophy, morality, goals, or good intentions won't solve our problem of compulsive overeating. Our human resources alone simply aren't sufficient. In step two, we are given the solution. Our situation is not hopeless. Far from it. There is hope, but that hope lies outside ourselves. As the big book says, we had to find power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. But where and how were we to find this power? In step two, we begin that search, an undertaking that will lead us through the remainder of the 12 steps. The big book was written as a set of directions for doing these 12 steps. The 12 steps are a specific method for producing a spiritual awakening, a personal and vital transformation. We submit to a process. We do lots of work. We search diligently. We search fearlessly. We think honestly. Indeed, we are building a bridge to God. Joining us today to share her experience is Janet B., a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey. Janet is dedicated to our 12-step way of life and is eager to be helpful and to carry this message of recovery. And it's with great appreciation and pleasure to welcome Janet B. to the line this morning. Good morning, Janet. Hi, good morning. Thank you, Leah. Hi, everyone. I'm Janet B., and I'm from New Jersey. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And just to give you a quick summary of my history before I talk in depth about the real cause for my binging and even more important about the God who rescued me. Um, I first came into OA when I was in high school and I was already a full-blown compulsive eater. I stole food, I stole money for food, and at my worst, I was binging and purging six times a day. I had to have my esophagus 
surgically retightened because of the abuse that I heaped on it. And I know sometimes at meetings, people pass around pictures. If I was going to show a picture of what I was like before, I would have to find a picture of a zombie. Because even though I looked fairly normal, I never had more than 20-ish pounds of extra weight on me. I was a walking dead person. I could be in a room with 100 people and feel like I was the only person on the planet. Um, Aside from this, I was a compulsive liar. And I made up crazy stories, including I would cut myself with a razor, pretending I was mugged or raped, went to a hospital once for a fake rape exam, all to get attention. Um, And I continued acting this way. And I continued binging and purging for my first six or seven years in OA. Um, Even though I was going to meetings and all that stuff, I kept binging and getting worse. Until finally, I was introduced to the 12 steps and the God who I believe um, launches a search and rescue program for all of us addicts. And once I surrendered my life to God and committed to work this 12-step program, it was like a hand reached into my soul and yanked out the obsession. And by the grace of God, I've now been in recovery for over 30 years, and I'm excited to talk to you about my story and more important, to talk about this God who is still alive and well and still working miracles. So the first thing I want to talk about are all the things I tried and why I thought I binged and why I was wrong. Um, When I went to OA, as I said, I was was just shy of my 16th birthday, and I was already a full-blown compulsive eater, and I felt relieved to know that I wasn't the only one on the planet who ate the way that I ate. Um, And I thought by, it was almost like, I guess if I had diabetes and I went to a meeting of Diabetics Anonymous, there's some comfort in knowing, okay, other people have the same problem. But no one would think that a diabetic who goes to meetings alone would get better if they didn't take the insulin. So I was like a diabetic going to DA and not injecting insulin. The problem was no one was talking about insulin. And what I mean by that was there were big books sold there, but no one used them. So for six years, I tried to figure out why, in spite of going to meetings and having sponsors and doing assignments, I wasn't getting better. In fact, I was getting worse. And I thought it was circumstances. I blamed it on my lousy upbringing, which in hindsight really wasn't lousy. And I thought I binged because I was miserable. But there I was, a senior in high school, and then a college boy invited me to a Beach Boys concert. Well, any of us who are old enough to remember that can remember that that is ultimate bliss. And there I was, as happy as can be, and I remember walking over to the mall and binging. And I couldn't understand it because I was happy. So I thought, oh, I must be binging to sabotage my happiness. Well, that was wrong too. Um, And what I've learned since then is circumstances are never the cause of binging, never the cause of relapse. And I know I've been to a lot of meetings where people have said, or before recovery, I've said myself, 
I broke my abstinence because dot, dot, dot. And there was always a reason, my lousy boss, my lousy husband, my annoying kids. There was always a reason that had to do with circumstances. I remember once in college saying I binged because the weather wasn't sunny on a day when I was planning to be outside. Um, But I've since learned that if we're eating compulsively, it's always 100% of the time because there's something wrong with our spiritual condition. It never depended on my circumstances. And I'm thinking about Jim in chapter three. Um, Remember Jim, he had his family, he had a job, all was going well externally, but because he failed to enlarge his spiritual life, he got drunk. And then I always contrast that with Bill Wilson in the chapter, A Vision for You. And the text on page 154 says that he was bitterly discouraged, in a strange place, discredited, and almost broke. Well, that sounds really bad. I mean, I would expect him to go get drunk. But instead of getting drunk, he started Alcoholics Anonymous because, and this is important, I think, because he had surrendered his life to God, and therefore he was protected. See, I don't think, we don't not binge because we're good or because we work hard. The only way we're able to not binge is because we're protected by God. It never has to do with circumstances. So if it wasn't circumstances, was it lack of knowledge? Did I need to know better what foods were triggering me? I had food plan after food plan that eliminated binge foods. And I must have done that assignment to write a history of my compulsive eating at least 25 times. And guess what? I still couldn't stop. Because my problem wasn't lack of knowledge. Like, imagine um, someone going to the oncologist, being showed an x-ray or a CAT scan or something, and being told, see that spot there? That proves you have cancer. Now that you have the knowledge that you're a real cancer patient, that you really have cancer, now go make your cancer cells stop multiplying. Well, of course, a doctor would never say that. And yet, how many times was I told that if I really knew I was a compulsive eater, I would be able to stop? Didn't work. Okay, so if it wasn't circumstances and it wasn't lack of knowledge, Maybe I didn't want it badly enough. So during those first six and a half years in OA, I had about 50 different sponsors. I'm not kidding, about 50 different sponsors. And I kept getting dropped um, with people thinking and sometimes saying, oh, Janet just doesn't want it badly enough. And I think that sometimes people assume that if someone can't stop binging, it's because that person doesn't really want to stop. And we confuse desire with power. We think that lack of desire is the problem. If I had a dollar for every time someone had said about me, oh, she just doesn't have a real desire to stop binging, I could quit my job now and retire. I had the desire to stop. I just didn't have the power. And that's what our book tells us. 
on page 24, it says that at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, or for us, compulsive eaters, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking or binging is of absolutely no avail. So my desire was useless. So there I was, six and a half years in, still binging, with my binges growing more and more frequent and more and more severe, and my purging becoming more frequent. Um, I had the knowledge, I had the desire, but I didn't have the power. And what does it mean to not have power? Obviously, there wasn't some furry little creature that kept shoving my hand into a bag of this or a carton of that. Clearly, it was me who did it. So what does it mean that I didn't have power? I think this is so, so important, and it took me so long to understand it. Um, but the writers of the big book put the paragraph that explains it in italics, which says that, yeah, this should be something super important to pay attention to. On page 24, it says that we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering or humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. Well, that's a lot of like big words, but what does that really mean? So let's break it down. Um, Normally, my defense against doing anything dangerous is my memory. Well, that sounds weird, but stay with me. So let's say I'm cleaning up after dinner and I'm about to touch a hot stove. Well, in my memory are stored all these data points telling me that touching a hot stove is dangerous. So if I'm about to touch a hot stove, my memory will send a little thought running across the bridge that connects my memory to my conscious mind and says, stop, danger, hot stoves will burn you. My memory's doing its job. And then I don't touch the stove, right? That's why we don't let our kids play near hot stoves. They don't have the memory yet. They either haven't been told or they haven't had the experience of touching a hot stove and getting their hand burned. I'll take another example personal to me. Um, I have a terrible cat allergy. So stored in my memory are a bunch of data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. So if I'm tempted to go into a pet store or visit a friend who has a cat, my memory will send a little thought running across the bridge that connects to my conscious mind and says, stop, danger, cats will give you asthma attacks. So again, my memory protects me from the danger. So now let's go to food. So I used to binge on these certain kind of cookies when I was in college. And I would always say, I'm going to have just one or two, but I would end up eating the whole box of 20 and sometimes running out to get a second box. So of course, in my memory were all these data points of how I would promise myself I'd just eat one cookie but end up eating the whole box and more. So I'd be on my way, about to buy a box of cookies, promising myself I'll just have one, and my memory does its job. It generates a little thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger, 
You won't be able to stop at one. You'll eat the whole box and then you'll hate yourself and you'll get fatter. Don't do it. Except when it came to food, the bridge between my memory and my conscious mind was broken. The bridge was broken and the thought couldn't get across. So unlike touching hot stoves or going near cats where my memory saves me, when it came to food, my memory failed to save me. It failed to hold me in check. And I had no defense against the first compulsive bite. I couldn't keep the memory green. I couldn't just tell myself to stay away from certain foods. When it came to food, the bridge between my memory and my conscious mind, my will was broken. And once broken, it could never, ever be repaired. And I was hopeless. Just like Bill Wilson, when he realized he was hopeless, said on page eight, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. For me, food was my master, and I had a broken bridge. Okay, so our bridges are broken. There's no connection between our memory and our conscious mind when it comes to food. Well, the first question that we all ask is, how did it get broken? Um, there's a couple of answers put forth by two AA doctors. Dr. Bob says that selfishness played an important part in bringing on his alcoholism. Dr. Paul, who wrote the story, Acceptance Was the Answer, said elsewhere that God stamps every 10th baby an alcoholic. So basically what the founders of the big book are saying is that we don't know. We don't know how we became alcoholics or compulsive eaters. But what we do know is that once the bridge between our memory and our conscious mind is broken, it can't be fixed. So how did I recover? And how do we all recover? What do we do when our bridges are broken? And the answer is we build another bridge, and that's a bridge to God. And it starts with willingness. Now, remember, willingness doesn't just mean being willing to stick to a food plan because I'm powerless to do that. Yes, I have to be willing to be on a food plan and to have discipline, but I need more than that. Willingness means being willing to do the work that will allow God to come in and remove the obsession. As I've heard it said before, willingness allows grace to enter. And on page 58 of our book, it tells us that if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then, and I say then and only then, are you ready to take certain steps? So in other words, if a person isn't willing to go to any length, they shouldn't expect to recover. Now, if you're a smart aleck like I used to be, you might say, well, I'm not willing to rob a bank, so does that mean I can't recover? But of course, the willingness they're talking about has to be in line with the recovery principles in this book. And I think that robbing a bank would clearly violate the recovery principle of honesty. 
So we want to be careful that, you know, don't do what I did and just be a smart aleck and try and look for loopholes. So a good example of why willingness has to be the first layer in our bridge is um, I like the example in the chapter, A Vision for You, where we see how Bill first told Dr. Bob all about the recovery program. And Dr. Bob was really enthused about it. He said he would do anything except admit he was an alcoholic to his patient. And of course, he got drunk again. Because as long as we say we're willing to do anything except fill in the blank, we won't recover. And we all have our own fill in the blanks that we need to get past. But as we know, the story with Dr. Bob has a happy ending because once Dr. Bob decided he would face his problem squarely so that God might give him mastery, which meant telling people he was an alcoholic, he stopped drinking and Alcoholics Anonymous was born. His willingness allowed God to do a great and mighty work through him. Okay, so we're willing. What's the second material needed to build our bridge? It's faith. It's being willing to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. And I once went through the book just because I realized, okay, lack of power is my dilemma. That's my problem. Where does recovery start? Where does power start? It doesn't start with admitting I'm powerless or getting the right food plan or making a certain number of phone calls or meetings. Page 46 of the big book tells me exactly when I start getting power. It says, as soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power. Power, there's that word. And direction, what am I supposed to do next? Provided we took other simple steps. That line to me is so exciting. Remember, lack of power is my problem, so my solution has to be an infusion of power. It's almost like a pick line to my heart of power from God. And as soon as all I have to do is admit the possibility that God exists, I get power. Well, this is all well and good if I have a working relationship with God. But if I really had a working relationship with God, I never would have been a compulsive eater in the first place. So what do I do if I believe in God, but I don't think he can or will help me with binging? Or what if I don't believe in God at all? Well, on page 158, we see AA number three saying, and I'm paraphrasing, maybe God can help me. Maybe. His faith started with a maybe. And I found that when we're starting out, if we're not sure that God can help, or even if he's there, it's okay to say maybe. The prayer may go something like this. God, I'm not sure you exist. And if you do exist, I don't know if you care about me. I've done so many things. Maybe you've given up on me. I don't know. But if you are there, and if you do care, I need some help. 
And the worst thing that will happen is that there's no God and we end up talking to dead air. But what if there really is a God? What if there is? And what if he's listening? And what if he's just waiting for us to say a prayer like that so he can get to work? Because the big book also talks about things that can actually block our belief in God. Bill talks about having scales of pride and prejudice that blinded him to the reality of God. Pride and prejudice. Pride. Thinking of myself too much and or thinking too much of myself. And prejudice. Thinking too little of others and or thinking of others too little. So in the chapter, We Agnostics, we're told we have to look at our prejudices. And there are at least half a dozen that can be teased out of that chapter, different prejudices. The chapter also warns us of three things that can obscure, that can block our view of God. Calamity, bad things that have happened. Pomp, which is really worshiping myself. And worship of other things putting money, career, or another person ahead of God. So I think it's really important to find out what our own personal prejudices are so we can hurry on up and get into that love relationship with God, get those prejudices out of the way so we can get into our relationship with God. So once we have faith, the next layer of our bridge is surrender. Um, we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. What does that mean? What does it mean to turn my will and my life over? Um, It simply means that I do what I think God would want me to do and leave the results up to him. And this part is also, I think, so important to understand. Um, So I'll give an example from my life. Generally, we have goals, and the goals are often good ones, such as one that I had, raising respectful children. No one would ever tell me that's a bad goal. However, that's my goal. It's radically different than having a goal, which is to simply do God's will. So let's say my goal is to raise respectful children. And I try my hardest, and I do the right things most of the time, but my children still aren't respectful. What's going to happen? I'm going to get resentful and fearful and controlling and feel like a failure and probably start doing lots of wrong things like screaming or manipulating in order to reach my goal. However, if my goal is simply to do God's will, and I believe that God's will is for me to teach my kids how to be respectful, I'll still try my best with my kids, but I'm less likely to get angry, fearful, frustrated, and manipulative because I'm not focused on the results, having respectful children. I'm only focused on my obedience to God. So in other words, it's a whole paradigm shift in the way I live my life. The goal shifts from achieving something, even if that something is good, 
to simply doing God's will. And that's all that surrender means. So now I've got a layer of willingness, a layer of faith, and a layer of surrender. Now I've got a rickety bridge connecting me to God, but there's more work to do because I want a bridge sturdy enough to withstand the certain trials and low spots that page 15 promises me are ahead. So I need to clear up the obstacles on that bridge, those things that are blocking me from really getting up close and personal with God. And those obstacles are my resentments, my fears, and the harms that I've caused to others. So I inventory these. I share them with an understanding person who's ideally been through this process before and can help me see what I might not be able to. And then I take a nice long look at my defects of character, the things that block me from God. And then the coolest thing happens. So even though I created, I built all these obstacles, these boulders sitting on my bridge, God doesn't say, okay, lift them and then you can come to me. He could have. He'd have every right to. He'd have every right to say, you made this mess, now you clean it up. But he knows that I can't. I can't on my own. So he picks up those boulders that are too heavy for me to lift, and he lifts them himself. He removes my character defects. In other words, God helps me to build that bridge. And then once my defects are removed, I can go out and make amends to the people I've harmed. And then I've got my sturdy bridge. I have a connection with God as long as I continue doing three things. One, I have to clear away the wreckage of each day. Otherwise, I'm going to just have boulders again that block me from God. The second thing I have to do every day is I have to communicate with God through prayer and meditation. I mean, what good is it to say, God, I'm going to do your will, but not give him the time and space to let me know what his will is? At my job, I certainly make sure to give my boss time and space to tell me what he wants done. Otherwise, I wouldn't be employed very long. How much more so do I need to do it for my real employer, my employer with a capital E? And the third thing I have to do is to help other people build their bridges. If I do that, I'm promised immunity against compulsive eating. Immunity, that is so cool. The first line of the chapter, Working with Others, tells us that nothing will ensure immunity so much as intensive work with other alcoholics, or for us, compulsive eaters. Immunity, as my dearest friend Melissa C. says, when we get a vaccination for a disease, we have immunity against that disease. By building my bridge and then helping others to build their bridges, I have immunity against the disease of compulsive eating. So at the beginning of my talk, I said that I believe God launches a search and rescue program for addicts. He definitely launched one for me. And he didn't just rescue me. He restored not only my sanity, but he gave me a life beyond anything I could have planned. Um, 
my favorite line is on page 100. The things that come to us when we put ourselves in God's plan, God's hands are better than anything we could have planned. That means if I were to take a piece of paper and write down all the best things in, that I could ever want for my life, those are my plans. They're nothing compared to what God has planned for me. But that makes sense because God's imagination and God's power to make things happen are way bigger than mine. But there's a condition, right? The next line says, follow the dictates of a higher power. Dictates, that means I need to be surrendered to God. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently be living in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present circumstances. So as I said, um, God really did that for me. Um, he changed me. I mentioned at the beginning how I just lied crazy, big, disgusting lies. Um, I don't lie anymore, ever. In fact, my teenage kids would ask me, Mom, did you look at my texts on my phone? Because they knew if I did, I would have to confess. I could not lie. Um, my 18-year-old son told his girlfriend last week, my mom is a lot of things, but she's not a liar. Um, I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but he's 18, so I'll take what I can get. Um, my marriage is good. My career is good. And even during this time of coronavirus, I have a great sense of purpose. I have the best friends that I could ever want, and I have a God who will never let go. I want to close with a few words specifically for the compulsive eater listening today who's feeling like I was for my first six and a half years in OA when I went to meetings and made phone calls and turned over my, turned over my food and went through a revolving door of sponsors and still didn't get it. Those things weren't enough because the only solution put forth for a real compulsive eater is a miracle. Remember, when Bill was 12-stepped, he said, here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. I needed a miracle. But the coolest thing is that our book gives us the recipe of a miracle. I think that's so cool, like the recipe for baking something. You know, we all learned how to read these. Now we've got a recipe for a miracle. On page 57, um, when it talks about the minister's son, a hardcore alcoholic who was restored to sanity by God, the text says, what is this but a miracle of healing? Yet its elements are simple. What? The elements of a miracle are simple? They're giving us the elements of a miracle, a recipe for a miracle, and they're telling us it's simple. And here they are. It says, circumstances made him willing to believe. There he has it, like we talked about, his willingness and his faith. Then he humbly offered himself to his maker, his surrender. Then he knew. Then God could come in and get to work. Those are the first three ingredients for a miracle. Admission of powerlessness, willingness, and surrender. Um, I believe that every one of us can have that miracle because there really is a God 
who's alive and well and just waiting to help us build our bridges to him. And with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Janet, for sharing your personal experience with us and carrying a message of depth and weight to all of us here on A Vision for You. Janet's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. We will transition now to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question to Janet by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Brenda A. Brenda A. Sharon C. Gotcha, Sharon. Jason K. Jason K. Mary Lee R. In Oregon. Someone after Jason K. Patricia M. Thank you, Patricia. Devorah S. Hi, Devorah. Got you. Hi, thank you. Okay, that's a great group to start. I have Brenda A., Sharon C., Jason K., Patricia M., Mary Lee R., and Devorah S. Everybody, please mute. Brenda, you're up with your question, please. Hello? Brenda, go ahead with your question. Yeah, hi, good morning. Um, Thank you, all of you wonderful fellows, and a particular thank you to Janet B. Janet, um, this is not a question. These are accolades, and all I want is what you have, and I am recovering one day at a time with your help, with Melissa's help, and all of the others who come together in this extraordinary fellowship. I am finally experiencing the miracle, and I owe it all to you to opening up my eyes and building a new roadway. I have surrendered to God, and it's always thanks to you. May you be blessed always. Thank you, Brenda. Sharon C., question, please. Thank you. Can you hear me now? I hear you, Sharon. I thought I was unmuted before. Okay, yeah, Sharon C., uh, recovered compulsive overeater. Uh, I want to thank you so very much. That was beautiful, wonderful, uh, really, really strong. Um, My question is, and I I don't know how I'm going to, let's see, how am I going to ask this? Okay, I I have surrendered. I've I've had a, a spiritual awakening. I've I keep going through the steps as we all do year after year, and but I'm finding myself at a point where I sometimes I forget to go to my higher power, who is God, and for for every little thing, and it's so important for me to do that. I because it really works when I do that, um, and I don't know if there's even an answer except that I guess. Well, that's all. That's that's. I'm going to ask that. Is there a way to? to remember, even at the times when things are so urgent and things happen so quickly, to take that pause and uh, take that breath and, and, you know, talk to my higher power and ask for help. Okay. um, Thanks. That's a good question. And 
here's what comes to mind. We we want that to become automatic, but it isn't because we're so used to running on self-will. So one thing I might suggest is to set an alarm on our phones, maybe for every hour, every two hours, that when it goes off, it reminds us to just kind of take stock of like kind of a mini 10-step, um, review our last hour or two, thank God for what's gone well in that time, and ask him for help for any problems that exist. And if we do it um, by discipline for a while, then the hope is that after a while, it'll just become automatic and we won't need to set our reminders anymore. Thank you, Sharon C., for your question. Jason Kay, your turn. Good morning, Jason Kay, Recovered Compulsive Eater. Um, thank you for your talk. And um, when you describe uh, the type of learning from putting our hands on a hot stove and that, that consequences don't come into mind, how do you talk to people uh, who have the experience of feeling like we know it's going to be a bad idea, we know that eating you know, these certain foods are going to lead to a binge, but we just say things like, I don't care, or I changed my mind, or I, it's going to hurt and it's going to be bad, but um, I'm going to do it anyways because I can't do anything else. How do, you, how do you talk about that in terms of the big book and have you experienced that and how do you communicate that to people who are new? Okay, another really good question. So um, I'm, gonna tr- I'm trying to find the right page, but it talks in the book it talks about the people who have all these excuses in in the chapter, there is a solution. And I think when people say, well, at the, I think that's how we all were, right? At the moment, it's like, I don't care. Um, I'll start tomorrow. Um, the heck with it. So I think there's two types of people. There's the person who really doesn't want to recover. And so what I always say is, if your fairy godmother would come and wave a magic wand, and strike you recovered and remove the obsession, would you want it? And every now and then, someone might say, yeah, no, I'm happy the way I am. It doesn't bother me. And those are the people we're not supposed to try to help. But the other people, of course, in the moment when I'm tempted to binge, when I wanted to go out and get those cookies, um, I thought, well, I can't help it. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Because my bridge was broken and my memory didn't rescue me. It couldn't rescue me. So here's what I do. I make sure that someone understands that concept, that their memory fails to hold them in check. They cannot rely on their memory. Great. Once they understand that, they have a first step. Then I immediately, and sometimes it's like within five minutes because sometimes people can't even go an hour Till their next binge, um, then I would right away get them on to the second step because that's where we start getting power. Just because I know I'm a compulsive eater, that doesn't give me any power. Just like, you know, if I had cancer and I knew it, I couldn't make my cancer cells stop multiplying. So immediately, as fast as we can, we have to get them to the to step two where they start getting power. And then it says they get their first infusion of power provided we took other simple steps. 
So as soon as they can believe that, yes, God can restore them to sanity, then we move them on to step three. Because with each step, we get more and more power, right? By step five, it says the feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. And by after step nine, the problem's been removed. So I would say it's to make sure they really understand about that broken bridge and then get them through the rest of the steps, especially through that second step as quickly as possible. Thanks. Thank you very much, Jason Kay. Patricia M., your turn to ask a question. This is Patricia M., and Jason M., asked my question. Thank you. Okay, easy enough. Thank you. Mary Lee R., you're up. Good morning, Leanne, everyone. Um, several of my questions have been answered, but there's still one left. <laughs> um, the broken brain, I, I, I can so resonate with that. So what 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 do you do when the script doesn't go according to the way you want it to go? Um, well, I'm a human being, so sometimes I get sad or mad, and then I have to do a 10-step and deal with it. Um, but then I tell myself that I tried to play God for so many years and I'm so underqualified for the job and that God has a plan bigger than my plan and God lo God loves me and God has my best interest at heart so and God is smarter than I am and more powerful than I am and so I just try and um and just say God, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to trust you anyway. And I just trust in his bigness. I can also keep reminding myself of all the times in the past he hasn't let me down, that he removed my food obsession. He, you know, and I can list off things he's done for me. That's why I think gratitude lists are, are really helpful. Um, but to just remind myself, God is smarter, more powerful, and more loving than I could ever be. And I trust him. I hope that helps. Oh, thank you. That reminds me of, of God, I'm yours, and I trust you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Mary Lee R. Devora S., your turn. Hey, good morning, and thank you all um, for doing what you do. Um, I'm Devorah S., and I'm recovered in New Jersey. So thank you, Janet. It was great to hear you, and all your information is amazing. So I'm asking you about, you said you came in when you were a teenager. Um, how did that happen? I have a teenage daughter who I see is struggling, and, um, you know, she knows what I do. She knows the lingo. She hears me. Well, and she, she says, I'm happy, Ma. I, I'm happy. You know, I, I like what I am. I like what I do. So what would you what would you do in this situation? So to answer your first question, um, 
I came in, there were, uh, there were actually other teenagers in my school. The meeting was held, there was an OA meeting held in my high school. So there were a few kids I hung out with who were going to OA. So that's how I heard about it. Um, I said, my mom was going too at the time, now that I think of it. But I think I came in through my friends. Um, regarding kids, I, the best I could recommend is the chapter Two Wives because it's written for the families of addicts and it talks about the different types of addicts, um, whether they're type one, two, three, and four, and it gives very specific guidance on what to do for each. Um, I would say if someone says they're happy, um, there's not really anything we can do because this is for people who just say, I'm desperate, I can't take it anymore, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Except, of course, we can always pray, 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 because prayer really works. And we can just model good examples. Thanks. Thank you, Devorah S., for your question. Who else has a question to pose to... Janet, this morning, star one to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. This is Stephanie P. Stephanie P. Christina J. Yes, Pauline T. Stephanie Bill D. Bill D. Got ya. I don't know if you heard me, Pauline T. Indeed, I did. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Did you hear Maria T. Did you Maria hear Christina Yes. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Maria T. Yes, Maria, thank you. Delphine B. Okay. I didn't catch your first name. Somebody B. It's Delphine B. Thank you. That's Stephanie P. Christina J. Pauline T, Bill D, Maria T, and Jelson B. Okay, we'll catch that. Yeah, that's that. Thank you. Stephanie P, go right ahead with your question, please. Stephanie P. or perhaps Bethany P. Star one to unmute. Well, Christina J., let's go to you for a question, please. 
Oh, I don't think I was unmuted. This is Stephanie. Did you guys not hear what I just said? Let's go ahead. Yes, Stephanie, we didn't catch anything that you said. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, no, I just said there were so many things that I could relate to and that I'm like, oh, that yeah, that made sense. Um, but you said that this was recorded. Is there somewhere that I can go back and listen to it again? Exactly, yes. I will give instructions for that after the recording concludes. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Christina J., your turn. Star one ten mute. Christina. Good morning. Christina mm-hmm. Jay from the state. Hello? Go right ahead. Okay, thanks. From the state of Washington. And, um, yeah, so wonderful share. I mean, really breaking it down beautifully. Um, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So when I'm working with people, sometimes they don't, they're pretty hopeless and they have a very far distance from anything they would like to call God. They don't want to call anything God. So how would you, how do you work with someone like that as far as helping them, you know, actually helping their God to help them to open them up to something that they can grasp onto while they then continue to work the rest of the steps to get to that spiritual awakening? Thank you, I pass. So I guess, I just want to make sure I understand it properly. If a person says, you know, the qualifications to work this program is if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it. And what we have is um, really a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So if someone says, I'm not even willing to entertain the possibility that a power outside myself exists, um, then, you know, on page 44, it tells us that that's a disaster. Um, It says to be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to faith. And I guess I would explain that they certainly don't have to have my concept of God, but they need to have some concept of a higher power or rather they have to be willing to believe that there's a higher power. And if they're not even willing to do that, um, then I would question if they really have a first step. If they are willing, then, then it starts getting easier, right? Because then we can tell them to do a prayer like the one I talked about, like God, higher power, I don't even know if you exist. But if you do, um, I need help. And then it's amazing how when people pray like that, God shows up for them. Because remember, he's just waiting to get to work in our hearts. Um, So I would say I would have a person start there um, just with this, okay, God, maybe you exist. Um, And if you do, I need some help. Thank you. Thank you very much, Christina J. Pauline T. Star one ton mute. Pauline T. 
Yes, this is Pauline T., compulsive overeater. Thank you to the speaker. Um, reminder or encouragement to not give up on sponsorship. I've come to the program uh, for three months, gone through three sponsors, and um, each one has offered an awareness of why I may not be able to be sponsored. And um, <clears throat> I began calling people to get to know them better before asking. And one person was very abrupt with me, and I felt myself backing away. I made a decision, though, that I would continue to try. And I called someone I had spoken to once. She had been one of the people who was open to sponsorship. She told me that I needed to interview people and then see if it was a good fit. And that was encouraging. I never heard that before. Um, another thing that I was reminded listening to people is that I, whenever I am feeling uncomfortable, whenever there is a concern, I invite God in. I simply say, be with me. And this morning I was sneezing, oh, a hundred times every 15 minutes. And I said, be with me, God, as I was holding my nose. <laughs> and the thought came, put a mask on, and I did. And I feel so much better. I also uh, do not have a plan other than being willing to, yes. This is an opportunity for questions if you have a question for Janet, our speaker. Oh, I did hear other people not questioning. Well, my question is that um, I, I don't have a question. I just have appreciation. Thank you. I'll pass. Thanks for your appreciation. Phil D., your turn. Okay. Is it time for Bill D.? It in It is. Yes, for your question. Oh. Thank you, Bill. Okay, thank you. Yes, I do have a question. Um, so this is Bill D. is in Delta from Atlanta, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And uh, first, Jan, I want to say thank you for your share and your ex your examples or your parables, however you want to call them, uh, are so, so helpful to me. Obviously, I'm a concrete thinker because when you talk about a broken bridge and that we need to create a bridge to God, that is just so helpful to me because it gives me just something specific. And also about the cancer patient and the doctor saying, well, just go go now and stop your re <laughs> reproduction of your cancer cells. What? You know, that's just such a great, great analogy for me. So thank you for those concrete analogies. They're so helpful. My question is this. Um, I have a couple sponsees that I have um, led rapidly through the 12 steps, and they are doing everything that I've asked so far, but they hesitate when they get to step 12. And so I'm not sure where the hesitation is coming from, if it's a lack of confidence or what, but to me, step 12 is the most amazing step of all because by sponsoring others, I learn so much from them and from about myself and about God. And so it's not 11-step program, it's 12-step. So my question is, you know, if you had a couple sponsees like this that are hesitating, doing great on steps one through 11, but hesitating when it comes to step 12, um, do you have any advice or any um, 
you know, words of wisdom that maybe God's imparted to you that would help in that situation. And I just pray that God's will be done. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'll try. So, yes, what I do is I actually created a – so I was once taken through the steps by someone who I think her grand sponsor was Dr. Bob. And she created a little manual um, that she worked off of. And so she gave it to me. And over the years, I just tweaked it and then did my own. And so when I take people through the steps, I follow, it's almost like a script. So when I start sponsoring, when one of my sponsees is ready to sponsor, I give her that. And I also tell her that I am available for your first couple sponsees, just like call me, let me know what's going on. Um, I will not co-sponsor with you, but I'm, I'm, I don't just say, okay, you're a sponsor. Good luck. Have a nice life. I'm there to help and to, um, and to guide them through. And what most of them have found is like they've kept journals as they were going through the steps of what they were told to do and that they just say they use that and turn around and do that with their sponsees so they don't feel so alone. Um, I also have go in detail through the chapter working with others. I actually made a recording of myself going through that chapter. You know, it took like an hour and then they listen to it and they can pause it and take notes. So they get the benefit um, however much of a benefit it may be, of my experience and my thoughts. So I give them paper, you know, um, like paper notes to go by, a recording I've made to go by, and I stay available to them so they have a resource when they start sponsoring. And I think that all makes it way less scary for them. Wonderful. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you, Bill D., for your question. Maria T., your turn. Thanks, Leah. There we go. Hi. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. Um, My name is Maria, and Maria T., and I'm recovered in Norway. I my question to Janet is, and thank you for an absolutely fantastic um, share. It was phenomenal, really, really strong and powerful. And that's what I heard when I came into a vision, and that's what I wanted. And after struggling for many, many years, not being able to get absent, and except I was in a way, uh, probably about twenty-one years. <laughs> so um, it was a big struggle. But um, anyway, I came to the fellowship and um, I was taken through, uh, I knew the solution was in the big book because I had been in another fellowship which studies the big book. And, um, you know, I I knew that that was the case. So it wasn't such a difficult issue for me uh, going through the big book. And my sponsor who took me through the the book, it, it took about six weeks in total for us to get from uh, from uh, the doctor's opinion to um, um, working through 10, 11, and 12. So, um, so my question to you is that I have sponsored people in the past very quickly, um, 
really not going through the not studying the big book um just going through pages from pages 88 84 to 88 and um and you know i i was asked if if I could do that with a couple of sponsees who've been struggling to get abstinent and I did that and they still didn't get abstinent and I was just wondering how do you do you take them through do you take them through the full 164 pages do you go through it very quickly what what do you suggest i mean obviously i've talked to my sponsor about it but it's just good to get another perspective and i have spoken to somebody else who also takes people through the steps very quickly um, because, you know, I'm struggling getting people through to, to step 10, 11 and 12. It's just really, really tough. That's a great, so that's that's a great question. Great question. Um, I know people do it different ways. So mm. this, is what I, this is what I tell my sponsees. I say our goal is to get you through the steps so that you have a spiritual experience. We can all get our PhDs in big book later, but the goal is to get through the steps. So for me, I find it generally takes six to 12 weeks, depending on the person. Um, so I will go, I do not read line by line with everyone. I um, go through what I think are the important parts so, for instance, I'll say, okay, we're going to start work on step one. So we go through the important parts um, in the book that I think pertain to step one. The same with step two. Now, on the side, because I believe it's so important to learn the big book, um, I, at one point, had three sponsees all at the same level. And I said, you know what, like, why don't we just once a week meet and we'll do a chapter a week on a Zoom meeting. Um, but I work individually with them going through the steps. So my goal in that is not to, as I said, teach them how to have a PhD in big book. My goal there is to help them get a relationship with God so that their obsession with food can be removed. And then on the side, we'll work on learning about the big book. Thank you, Maria, for your question. Selson B, your turn, star one to unmute. Hello, my name is Delphine B. I'm a compulsive overreader from Paris, France. Thank you so much for uh, your experience. Uh, I've been in OA for 20 months now, and I relapsed this summer. I began to be sponsored by uh, a, a Vision for You sponsor a week ago. And I'm, obviously I realize I've experienced some spiritual, I don't know how to call that, uh, moments when I felt uh, a power higher than myself, but I obviously didn't experience um, a spiritual awakening as I can hear uh, some people talk about is there a way you could describe what is this spiritual awakening, at least for you? Sure. Um, first, I'll start by kind of saying what it, what it isn't. Um, on page 46, they talk about people who um, 
feel awe and wonder. Like if we look at a starlit night and say, wow, there, you know, who made all this? There's a feeling of awe and wonder, but that doesn't do it. That's not what they're talking about, like a spiritual experience. So what they're talking about, it's on page 25 and page 27, where it says the great fact is just this and nothing less. So we should settle for nothing less. That we've had deep and effective spiritual experiences, and then it tells us what it is. Revolutionize our whole attitude toward life, our fellows, and God's universe. I love that word revolution. It's like a war, a war that happens in my soul, really. That my whole attitude like toward other people, toward the way I look at life, toward God, is all changed. And how is it changed? The central fact of our lives is the absolute certainty, like 100% positive, that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives. So he's not just entered, but he's alive and working in a way that's miraculous. Um, And then on page 27, it's further described as huge emotional displacements and arrangements. That the way we think, the way we feel, it's just different. So for me, I used to think only about myself. Um, When I first started working this program, by effort of will, I had to make myself think of other people. Now, I wouldn't say it's 100% automatic, but it's way more automatic than it used to be. I like to think that when, um, I think of it like this, that when we come to believe that when we're willing and we surrender to God, that that allows God to say to this team of little angels with like hard hats and tool belts, okay, go into that soul and start working, start doing a renovation job. And how do we get it? Well, our 12 step tells us we have a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So my willingness and faith allow God to start sending in his team of angels to do for me what I can't do for myself, which is to change my heart from the ugly muck it was in to someone who's a halfway decent human being who doesn't obsess about food. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Who else has a question for Janet? Courtney M. Courtney M. This will be our final invitation for questions. Jillian M. Jillian M. Anita J. Anita J. Denise B. Denise B. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. Final opportunity. Margaret D. Mm-hmm. Amy B. Amy B. Anyone else? Angela A. Angela A. Okay, very good. 
I've got Courtney M, Jillian M, Anita J, Denise B, Margaret D, Amy B, and Angela A. Courtney M, your turn for a question. Thank you, Leah. Thank you for your service. This is tremendous. Uh, I'm Courtney M in Virginia, and I am a recovering compulsive overeater. I have been in and out of the program fellowship since the 70s. I can't tell you what day I went in, but um, I've been to thousands, literally thousands of meetings, and I've certainly been to hundreds of speaker meetings. And almost, I think with the exception of about five meetings, when I go to speaker meetings, the speaker always says, I'm going to tell you what it was like, what happened, and what it is like now. In the big book, in the second paragraph of how it works, it says our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. Janet, you're one of the first uh, in that group of five people who talked about the fact that circumstances do not cause our problems. It is not what it was like in our households or in our families. So my question to you is, how did you come? You you did a beautiful job of describing what you were like. How did you come to be able to differentiate and articulate the difference between what it is like in our lives, the circumstances, and what we are like with our broken bridges? When I'm working and I don't have any sponsors, I've never sponsored. I'm, I never feel like I have anything to offer. But Thank you, Courtney, for your question in the interest of time. Okay. Appreciate you posing just, the question. Yeah. I'm not quite sure that I understand the question, but if you're asking me how did I learn that it wasn't um, – it wasn't – my circumstances that determined my problem. Um, I'm sorry that you've only heard a few people say that because um, I guess maybe I was fortunate. Um, I would recommend reading the stories in the back of the big book because some of them make real clear that um, it wasn't what happened. It was always my reaction to what happened. Thank I you. hope that helps. Thank you so much, Courtney M. Jillian M., your turn to pose a question. Hi, can I be heard? Yes. Okay, great. Um, this is Jillian M. Uh, that's Jillian with a G, um, compulsive eater from um, Pennsylvania. Um, Janet, I really loved your presentation. Um, so you talked about on page 100 uh, where uh, it says, when we put ourselves in God's hands, um, uh, we they were better or the outcome was better than anything we could have planned. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what that process is like for you. Um, so currently I am working or I have been working on a couple of areas in my life that I would like um, to change or to have um, 
um, improvement on. And um, just specifically, like when you're when I'm trying to uh, work through those things and come up with um, what I would like those areas to look like. How do you work um, hand in hand with God on those? Um, and then a, the second part of that question is, <clears throat> I hear uh, I've heard the term outside um, issues. And I'm not quite clear about what that is and what an outside versus an inside issue is. Um, thank you, and I pass. Okay, I'll answer the first question, and then maybe I'll leave it to Leah to answer the second question. Um, so as far as putting things in God's hands, I think it, it simply means doing what I think God would have me do and leaving the outcome up to him. So maybe the best way I can explain it is an example from my life. Um, years ago, I had a job, and I realized that in order for me to keep that job, I'd have to compromise on my values. So I went to leave the job, and I, but I, and I found another job, but it paid at the time it was this was this was years ago. It paid six thousand dollars a year less, and I thought, well kind of stinks, but I'm doing, I believe this is God's will, even if I'm making less money. So what happened is shortly after I took the other job, my parents um, called me and said, you know, we were working on our estate plan, and as part of our estate plan, we're going to give you $1,500 a month. So three times more than I would have made it if I had stayed at that job. Um, now, would that have happened if I had not done God's will? I, you know, who knows? But to me, that's an example. I did God's will. I thought the outcome was I'd have a job, a little less money, but I get to live with my conscience. But the outcome was better than anything I could have planned. So that's what I mean. I do what I think God would have me and try my best not to think about the results. Thank you, Jillian M., for your question. Related to outside issues, just quickly, Tradition 5 states that each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. So any, we avoid any outside issues that are unrelated directly to compulsive overeating in order to focus in on our one primary purpose, that of carrying its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Anything else, we avoid controversy. And let's move on to our next question, Anita J. Thank you so much, Leah, for your service. Um, and thank you, Janet. Uh, that was, you snuck up on me with your um, knowledge, your example. Um, Anita J. recovered in Massachusetts. I can just hear the little kid in me listening to all this. And, um, here's the thing. How do you, through the years, well, how do you accept uh, things that trying to follow God's will to the best of your ability? And at the moment, and I expect that fairy tale ending in everything, my two children now are in the worst position with each other than they ever have been. 
I am just, I'm just, anyway, that, that is, that is one. And then a decision I made um, two years ago has resulted in my um, having now a disability that um, I'm not going to get uh, any stronger because of my age. And um, I just, I, I go back to why did I do that? Why did I go? And, um, and I try to say nothing Nothing happens in God, you know, my world without, you know, you know what I'm trying to say. So that's all. I'd, I'd like to hear another voice on this. Thank you, um, Janet. Yeah, when I think what you're asking is like what to do when God's will is hard. And it seems hard. And I can think of two things. One is um, I, you know, obviously we all have rough days and things that are hard. And I think that's why it's so important to have a fellowship and a fellowship of people in recovery who I can call and say, "Ah, my son is driving me crazy. um, And I don't feel very spiritual today about it. I just feel mad. And, you know, so a group of friends in recovery who can point me back on track if I'm off track and prayer. Prayer really works. So if I know that the king of the universe, I have the ear of the king of the universe and he is able to do all things and work all things together for good, that tends to alleviate my fears. So I can just go and pray and one way that I do it sometimes is I will picture God on a throne and I'll picture me kneeling at his feet with a big and the big rock there and writing down my problem on this big rock and just handing it to him and him taking it. And then it's his. So then if afterwards I ever think about that problem, I just say, oh, I took that rock back and I just go and I put it back in the lap of the king. And that visual that meditating on that visual helps me to do it. Thank you, Anita J., for your question. Denise B., your turn with a question, please. Hi, uh, this is Denise B. from New York City. Janet, thank you so much for your talk. It was great. Uh, My question is I'm recovered, and um, I tend to talk to a lot of relapsers, sponsor people who are, you know, in relapse for years, um, and then they drop back out. So, um, and I have actually relapsed and been able to get back in. Um, but I, I, it's almost like I never know what to say, except, well, you have to be uncomfortable, you know, because obviously they need to be out of the food, be, you know, as we go through the steps. Um, and they get maybe three days and then relapse and five days and relapse. It's It's like, I don't know where else to point them. I don't know how I went from you know, doing the program initially, getting recovered, that was like the easiest the first time, believe it or not. And then relapsing and getting back in, it was hard. But I don't know how I stayed out of the food long enough to then get to step four. It's like, um, so any advice I would really appreciate. Sure. Okay. Now, I'm just going to tell you how I do it. I'm aware that other people may do it differently. So I'm just telling you what I do. So we're powerless over food. So for me, um, I couldn't, um, I know ne- in my first six and a half years, I never got two weeks together 
I don't think I could get abstinent long enough for if someone said stay abstinent X number of, you know, days, weeks, whatever, before we were, when I first started, it was like you had to be abstinent. I think it was 30 days to work a fourth step. Well, obviously I never got there. If I have someone who absolutely cannot, you know, doesn't have the grace to even go a couple of days, what I might do is sit them down, make sure they understand the broken bridge, because they're not eating right then when they're sitting with me. We go through the broken bridge. They get their first step. I I have them show examples of their own broken bridge. You know, mine was the cookies in college. I make them give me three, make sure they get it, and then I might say, Okay, let's do step two now because that's when they get power. How can I expect someone to have power when they have no power? So I might do – now, most people can go a couple of days when I start working with them, but not always. And if they can't, then it's on me to to help them. so that's what I do. I try and get them to the point where they start getting an infusion of God's power as quickly as possible. As far as if they relapse, uh, again, people do it differently. I take my guidance by page 35 where it says when Jim got drunk, we reviewed with him carefully what had happened. Six times they did that. Um, and on page 20, and I had also at one point um, – gone through the book, and to find a list of what are pitfalls, what are things that can cause us to relapse. And I found, I think it was, it was 16 different things. So I just, um, those are things that I can go through with people, like, okay, have you been dishonest? Because if you're dishonest, you could be doing everything else right, you're never going to recover. And so I can go through the list and see, okay, like, are you, not, are you on your fourth step? and not putting in a heroic effort? Um, Are you falling down on your sex ideal? So to sum up, I get them through the steps as quickly as I can, um, given where they are. I work with them to try and find out what pitfall they fell into, um, and hopefully that helps. Thank you, Denise B. Margaret D., your turn for a question. We have about five minutes left here and three questions to go. Go ahead, thank Margaret. Thank you, Leah. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you. Um, Janet, thank you. What an awesome presentation. Um, my question is, do you have or have you noticed there are some areas um, where a character defect might be um, slip in and um, where it's harder to notice a certain character defect. Like, for example, for me, I I find sometimes that um, I go back and forth between the being better than and being worse than. And it's only after, um, you know, a certain period of time during the day, like maybe 20 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever, or an hour or two, that I'm like, oh my God, I'm back into that crazy thinking again. Um, so, you know, other than doing the 11th step and asking God to direct my thinking every morning, um, can you comment about that? It, or, or do you think, is that like just natural 
because we're never going to have all of our character defects totally removed. Thanks. Yeah, I think uh, this side of the grave, we're never going to have them all removed. And in fact, in the AA 12 and 12, I think it's, it's in step six. It says, I'm paraphrasing, why some are removed um, almost instantly and why some take a lot of patient improvement is a riddle, the answer of which may only be in the mind of God. Um, I know for myself, for instance, God removed the dishonesty almost immediately and pretty much completely. But there are other defects that I am on the lookout for. And I think the ones that I know I'm most prone to, um, I look out for them and I confess and ask God to forgive me and remove it a lot. And I've also then Googled like a specific, or looked for a specific prayer to go against that defect. And so I treat it with prayer. Thanks. Thank you, Margaret D. Amy B. That's awesome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Amy B., your turn. Good morning. Can I be heard? Yes. Oh, great. Thank you so much, Leah, for your service. This is Amy B., very grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater in New York. Janet, I literally squealed when I heard you introduced this morning. But to get to my question, um, can you just go over your general routine for a day, where uh, just how you work your program, how much time you spend with sponsees and outreach? That would be really helpful. Thank you so much. Hi, Hi, Amy. Okay, so it varies day to day, but in general, I spend an at 45 minutes-ish in the morning with God. Um, I make sure to do some spiritual reading. I pray, and I pray um, some specific things. I start with praise. I praise him. Um, and I don't always do this perfectly every day, but this is my ideal. I praise him. I thank him. Um, and then I go through what the big book tells me to pray for, strength for the day. I said, there's a few people I pray for. I pray for them. And then I listen. Um, I take out my journal and I say, God, I pray for knowledge of your will for me and power to carry it out. And show me how I can help the compulsive eater who's still suffering. And I set a timer for generally 15 minutes. And I listen. I await my marching orders. Um, then during the day, I, I have a few sponsees, so I'll work with some of them or I'll be speaking at a meeting. So I'll prep for that and speak at that. And then, I mean, I have a job. Um, I work. I try and take some time to work out every day. And I constantly am on the lookout. Again, not perfectly, but I try to look out for if a defect comes in and then I'll just ask God to remove it. And at night or sometimes if I fall asleep, I wait till the next morning. Um, I go over, go over my day and what I did wrong. And I share it with someone. Um, and that's, I mean, again, no two days are the same, but um, I just try and be mindful of what God would have me do and grateful for all that he does. Thank you, Amy B., for your question. And our final question for the morning comes from Angela A. 
May I be heard? Yes. Thank you. Um, thank you, Janet B. Thank you, Leah. I received my answers to pray. Thank you. Well, that's a great way to wrap up. Thank you to everybody who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Janet, for giving so much of yourself this morning, sharing your inspiring and profound message of depth and weight with all of us. Greatly appreciate your service and your recovery. We're going to close from page 164. You'll notice it's from a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.